In the justice system, crimes are investigated and tried by the government with two distinct sides. The prosecution, which represents the state, and the defense, who represents the accused. During his 60-year career, attorney Mike Fowler has been on the front lines of both sides. These are his stories. I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayou Brief, and on this episode of Combat in the Courtroom, in an epic tale that spans three decades, Mike Fowler, author of From the Bronx to the Bayou, tells us his role in the defense of his friend, Governor Edwin Edwards. If Huey P. Long defines the first half of the 20th century in Louisiana, Edwin Washington Edwards defines the second half. During the past decade or so, nearly every story about the now 92-year-old Edwards includes at least one of the following quotes. Dave Treen is so slow it takes him an hour and a half to watch 60 Minutes. Dave Treen, for those of you who may be unfamiliar, was the incumbent governor Edwards defeated in 1983 to reclaim the mansion for a third term. At the time, it was the most expensive non-presidential election in American history. When he ran for a fourth term in 1991, he squared off against another Dave, David Ernest Duke, former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. He and I have one thing in common. We're both wizards under the sheets. To this day, it remains the biggest election turnout in Louisiana history. And no story about Edwin Edwards would be complete without this singer. The only way I will lose this election is if I'm caught in bed with a dead girl or a live boy. Which we only know about because of a cub reporter for the Times-Picayune named Dean Baquette. If that name sounds familiar, yes, it's the same reporter who now works as the executive editor of the New York Times. But to me, there's one saying that stands out more than anything else, especially now. It's something he frequently repeats. If you wait by the river long enough, you will see the bodies of your dead enemies float by. Edwards claims it's a Chinese proverb. It's not. In fact, it appears he may be single-handedly responsible for creating the myth that the quote is part of ancient wisdom from the East. Others, perhaps in an effort to correct Edwards, have attributed the quote to Sun Tzu. They're wrong, too. It actually first appeared in James Clavell's 1975 novel, Shogun, though the version Edwin Edwards is fond of quoting seems to have been picked up by the filmmakers behind the 1993 movie Rising Sun, starring Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes. If you sit by the river long enough, you will see the body of your enemy floating by. Regardless of its provenance, there is a reason the expression resonates so much with the former governor on today's episode about the tribulations and the trials of Edwin Washington Edwards, as told by someone who knows more about the subject than anyone other than the governor himself, his former lawyer, Mike Fowler. But before we hear from Mike, the first name Mike mentions is someone who was deeply admired by folks from my hometown of Alexandria in central Louisiana. He was a big deal. In fact, at one point during the late 1990s, the local paper, the Town Talk, declared three people in two centuries of existence to be the most important to have ever lived in Alexandria. Congressman Gillis Long, General William Tecumseh Sherman, and arguably the greatest legal mind in the state during the last half of the 20th century. 
Mike's mentor and co-counsel, Camille Francis Gravel, Jr. Camille, who passed away in 2005 at the age of 90, never actually graduated from law school. He took the bar when he was still a student and aced it. Camille Gravel lived in an extraordinary life, an advisor to three governors, friends with John F. Kennedy, and a civil rights pioneer in his own right. Camille had also been instrumental in helping Edwin Edwards get elected to Congress in 1965. And two years later, he briefly considered running himself. By the time Edwin Edwards was elected governor in 1972, the two men had become very close friends and were equally revered as true statesmen of Louisiana. He served as executive counsel to Governor Edwards for his first two terms, and then later on as his personal lawyer. Oh, and he wrote the law that created Louisiana's notorious jungle primary system. But really the most important thing about Camille Gravel, the reason he is still to this day so revered by those who knew him and worked alongside him, is because he was a warrior for civil rights. In this story, he plays a supporting role, but in many ways he is like a modern Louisiana version of Hamilton a man who was always in the room where it happened. Okay, so where were we? The attorney for one of Edwin's business partners has a conflict, and that's where we begin. Camille Gravel, who I had been involved with in some other cases and who I admired, and who was very close to Edwin Edwards, was representing Edwards in what was then a conspiracy indictment or RICO indictment involving Edwin, Ron Falgu, Jim Wiley, Gus Majalis, Phil Brooks, and Perry Segura. I think Camille had recommended to Phil Brooks, whose attorney had been recused in the case, to hire me. And so I became a defense attorney for Phil Brooks before the indictment. That's how I entered into the case. The conspiracy laid out by the prosecution was that Edwards and associates had engaged in an attempt to rig the issuance of an extremely valuable government certificate known as a certificate of need. Mike's client, Phil Brooks, was a lawyer hired by two of the partners, Jim Wiley and Ron Falgu, to hold a legal document. Mike was the lawyer's lawyer. Now, all of this took place during the 80-84 period when Edwin was out of office. He was a private individual, free to engage in business all he wanted to. What the business was, was getting certificates of need for nursing homes. It's 1985. Ronald Reagan is at the height of his political power. Edwards was beginning his third term in office after a four-year hiatus. But even while a private citizen, Edwards still wielded significant political influence. There were whispers about Edwards running a shadow government, which made his every move subject to scrutiny and conspiracy theories. That's the only way to understand what happened in 1985, the environment in which this story takes place. It involves a complicated theory about Edwards having the audacity to partner with two businessmen to develop nursing homes when he was a private citizen. The thing is, not just anyone can get into the nursing home business. First, you need a certificate from the government to affirm that such a facility is, in fact, needed. The government's case suggested that an agreement had been reached between all these defendants in which it would be understood that they would keep secret the involvement of these individuals in the nursing home business 
and that Edwin, who was expected to run for office again in 84, would then be able to see to it that the certificate of need would be approved, at least during his administration. At this point, Mike only had to be concerned about his client, Phil Brooks. Phil Brooks' only involvement in the alleged conspiracy was something that would probably be arcane to any lawyer not familiar with Louisiana's civil law tradition. The counter letter. A counter letter is a contract in which the terms and conditions are only known between the parties involved. In this case, it was used by Edwards and his partners to hide their involvement with the corporation entity seeking a certificate of need. So Phil had testified in the grand jury, and then when I got into it, it was because he was being recalled to the grand jury. The government, thinking that what he was now telling them was contrary to his earlier testimony, and it was clear from my debriefing of Phil, they were just not understanding an innocent explanation for what they deemed an inconsistency. And so I advised Phil to take the fifth in before the grand jury. He did so, and the next thing we knew is he was indicted and became one of the defendants in the case for no reason other than they didn't accept his explanation. And so I entered as one of the defense attorneys in the case. And really, all I really needed to do is to make the jury understand the absolute innocence of the use of a counter letter in that case. Mike has just joined a group of high-powered attorneys, each of whom are representing at least one of the eight men indicted in the alleged conspiracy. When I got into the case and started talking about the case with other co-counsel, I realized how good a team had been put together. And Camille had brought in Jim Neal, who's an excellent attorney from Nashville, who I knew from his having worked in the Department of Justice under Bobby Kennedy. And he was lead counsel for Edwin. And Ginger Berrigan, who later became a federal judge, was the third part of their team. Bill Jeffers represented Ron Falgu. Rick Simmons, I believe, represented Jim Wiley. Pappy Trish represented Gus Majalis. Jack Martell represented Marion. And the original bull in a china shop, Louis Unglesby represented the cousin, Charles Isbell. It was a great team at no time during the preparation stage of the case, nor during the entire trial, was there ever any disharmony, a bunch of, gu- bunch of guys, who uh, none of whom had small egos. This team would be quite accomplished in their lifetimes. Ginger Berrigan would be appointed to the Eastern District of Louisiana by President Clinton in 1994, and go on to serve as the chief judge in that district from 2001 to 2008. She later presided over the case of the United States versus Ray Nagin, which saw the former mayor of New Orleans sentenced to 10 years in prison. Jim Neal, already accomplished, would continue his career with cases ranging from defending Elvis Presley's doctor to defending Exxon after the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Jack Marcel's career would also be legendary, winning cases for Muhammad Ali and the father of Popeyes, Al Copeland. The trial would begin on September 17, 1985. We went to trial before Marcel Lividay, who is a very fair judge, not a terribly experienced one, particularly in a criminal case, 
not a legal scholar, but a very fair man with a what I'd call a good stomach. He had a good gut reaction to what was fair and what was not. On the other side of the case was John Volz, and what all of the defense attorneys had in common was a serious dislike of John Volz. And basically, he, you know, he viewed Edwin as the devil incarnate and painted him in that way. In the first trial, there were many instances where we'd have what were called chamber conferences, where the government attorneys and the defense attorneys would meet with the judge, sort of standing around a table with the judge at one end. And on more than one occasion, John Voltz and I would get into it with the judge acting as the referee. One occasion came as close as could be to there being blows exchanged. Didn't come to that, but I have a recollection of somebody almost leaping across the table at one point. Uh, to put it mildly, I was not an admirer of John Voltz. John Voltz's case would hinge on proving that a bribe of some sort had occurred. And the truth of the matter is that Edwin, what he did as a private citizen was perfectly legitimate. He had an interest with Ron Falgu and Jim Wiley in this company that was seeking a certificate of need. When we went to trial, what the government didn't mention, but we made clear during our opening statements, that upon running for office, in 84, before taking office, he totally disassociated himself from the entity seeking the certificate of need. The government's theory was that there was a, an effort to get one of the government employees, a man named Landry, to approve the certificate of need on the promise of his being promoted once Edward won the election, which he was projected to do. Mike's client, Phil Brooks, was implicated in the alleged conspiracy through the execution of the counter letter issue. I was able to explain in my opening and then during the trial the total innocence of Phil Brooks's role in the case. By the time the government had rested, I moved to have a judgment of acquittal, in effect a directed verdict, as to Phil Brooks, the judge granted my motion for a judgment of acquittal. I was done with that case and did not participate in the defense aspect of the case, although I was present in court. And the most entertaining portion of that defense was when Edward took the stand and totally outgunned John Volz in parrying uh, all of Volz's thrusts at Edwin. Uh, he was a superb witness. He was a superb client as well. Mike takes the case of Judge Walter Nixon, and that's a whole other episode. For the first time in more than 14 weeks, Governor Edwin Washington Edwards stood behind the Louisiana State Seal, turning a news conference into a cheering rally of support after his racketeering trial was declared a mistrial. I have just won the 16th and most important election of my life and by the greatest majority ever, and I'm very proud of it. 
after all of this, I simply want to say how sweet it is. <laughs> now, so you will not engage in any assumptions or presumptions that something other is going to happen. Let me say to you that two years ago, I was elected by 63% of the people in this state, over a million votes, to be governor of Louisiana. I've been governor all that time, and I'm going to be governor for the rest of this term. As for the possibility of a retrial, U.S. Attorney John Volz says he's leaning toward trying Edwards again. Uh, there, wa there wasn't really much dispute about the facts in this case. If you think about it, there wasn't much dispute about what happened. The question is, uh, are the citizens of this state ready to, uh, to change that type of thing? And apparently they aren't. We presented our case for 13 weeks, and uh, those, if there are those who didn't think we proved it, I don't think it's that cut and dry myself. I don't think the verdict means that we didn't prove the case. I think the verdict means that they didn't want to convict these people. In fact, they think it may have been during the actual trial of the Nixon case, I get a call from Camille Gravel telling me that Jim Neal was not free to represent Edwin in the retrial would I be interested in taking on the role of lead counsel for Edwin? And I said, of course. The opportunity, you know, was once in a lifetime, and the idea of working closely with Camille made it even more attractive. I met with Edwin. We got along just fine. And, you know, one of the things I would say, this was true from what I could see in the first trial and in the second trial, Edwin was a totally focused at the height of his power and at the top of his game during this period of time. And he had the good sense to allow his lawyers to make all the critical decisions as to what should be done. Mike and Camille prepare to mount the same defense as before. When I get back after trying the Nixon case, I dive into defending Edwin. Spent time with Camille, you know, had the transcript of the whole first trial. It was going to be a repeat of the first trial. Now, at the first trial, the government's critical witness was the man Landry, who was supposed to have, in a sense, been bribed in a way. He was not a very good witness for the government in the first trial. Yes, he was involved in authorizing this certificate of need, but it was not a decision made solely by him, and it was a decision approved at upper levels of the department, and his advancement or promotion had nothing to do with Governor Edwards. It had to do with his superiors just approving his advancement, unrelated to anything having to do with Edwin. But as we entered the second trial, the government gave every indication that they were going to put Landry on the stand. But as we went forward with the trial, I and other defense attorneys, particularly Bill Jeffers, had a sense that they really were bluffing. They weren't going to call Landry to the stand. And without Landry, their case sort of disappeared. There was one other claim of the prosecution. Part of the government's sort of collateral thesis or ostensible motive that they tried to ascribe to Edwin was that he needed the money to make up for extensive gambling losses. Edwin 
didn't smoke, he didn't drink. He had a certain interest in the other sex, but he also liked to gamble. And what the government didn't bother to seriously look at was he was, and we were able to establish at the trial, on a yearly basis, he was winning far more than he was losing. Their theory that he had gambling debts was just a figment of the prosecution's imagination. We could do a whole show about the governor's trips to Las Vegas and his skills as a gambler on a professional level. Between 1982 and 84, as Mike points out, contrary to what the government claimed, he made over $500,000 in casino winnings. Between 1986 and 97, he took in $1.1 million. In court, the prosecutors attempted to embarrass Governor Edwards by pointing out that he sometimes gambled under assumed names, including Ed Neff, Muff Alata, and T. Wong. Later, when asked for comment, Edwards quipped, it's just a case of a good man gone Wong. Mike, as it turns out, probably should have bet his co-counsel Bill Jeffers on the prosecution strategy. His hunch was right. John Voles rested the prosecution's case without calling John Landry to the stand. The prosecution at last wrapped up its case this week. Now Governor Edwards will have a chance to tell his side of the story. So now we're ready to put on our case. And Camille and I caucus, and given what we view as a terrible or very weak case the government's put forward, I mean, they're really playing on all sorts of innuendos and suggestions rather than proof of wrongdoing. And I come with, up with the idea that we don't put on a case. That means Mike's plan was to present no additional witnesses, no exculpatory evidence, and proceed straight to closing arguments, where the defense would put forth that the charges were unproven. The idea was a stroke of courtroom bravado, to say the least. We first decided, we, Camille and I, that we needed to get Edwin on board with the decision not to put on a case, for him not to testify. Initially, Edwin voiced some opposition. He wanted a chance to uh, uh, personally exonerate himself, but he came around to our view of why it made sense, and he went along with it. But he said on one condition, that he'd be allowed to make the closing argument, which from my point of view, and to a lesser extent Camille's, was crazy. In May of 1986, Governor Edwin Edwards was still at the pinnacle of his power. As we now know, he'd already survived 11 grand jury investigations and won three gubernatorial elections, in no small part due to his smooth, Cajun way of telling a story. Edwards was once seen as such a threat to the state's case that the prosecution kept him from testifying as a character witness. It would certainly take more than Mike Fowler to keep Edwin Washington Edwards from talking. And so the next day we go into court and to the everybody's surprise, including the judge, we say, we rest. Let's go to the jury. At that point, I make the motion, un unwillingly, but I do make the motion, that Edwin be allowed to make the closing argument. Government counsel opposed it, and Judge Lividay denied it, which made me privately happy. But he granted us time to go to the Fifth Circuit. So the next day, I find myself in the Fifth Circuit with my proposed co-counsel, Edwin, sitting next to me. And I'm there arguing that he should be allowed to present the summation, 
government objected, and to my relief, the Fifth Circuit denied the application. With the Fifth Circuit decision keeping Edwin out of courtroom combat, Mike began his closing arguments on May 8, 1986. I knew this case inside out. I took at least three hours. And then the jury retired to deliberate. My best recollection, I had to be on a Friday because the jury deliberated overnight. They came back on Saturday. Mid-afternoon, they came in with a unanimous verdict of not guilty as to each and every defendant on all counts in the indictment. Edwin, even though the rest of us planned to have a party, a dinner party uh, that night, he got in his car and drove home. We went out, partied till late out some morning at the Roosevelt Hotel, and the next day there was a great banner headline, you know, as big as war being declared, you know, Edwin, Edwards found not guilty. Even though Edwards had been completely exonerated and made prosecutor John Voles look foolish, the 235-day span of wall-to-wall coverage had left Edwards' reputation bruised and branded a crook forever. For a lesser politician, this might have been the extraordinary flameout of a successful career. For Edwards, business was as constant as the Mississippi. I got to know Edwin better in the post-trial than I knew him during the trial. Whenever I go to Baton Rouge, I could drop in and have lunch at the mansion. You knew that Edwin was sitting down at the table at noon. Punctually, whoever was at the table was free to eat. Sort of an open table. Mike became close friends with Edwin Edwards and was invited to his 1987 re-election night party at the Hotel Monteleon in the French Quarter. I was there in 1987, Governor Edwards running for re-election against Buddy Roma. It was going to be a party that night at the Monteleon. I remember parking my car in the Monteleon parking lot and a guy coming up to me whom I didn't recognize. And he, you know, took the car from me when I parked and said, you don't remember me. And I said, I don't remember. He said, I sat on your jury in the first Edwin case. I said, well, it's good to see you again. I go up to the suite that we're using for the party to be held, got the results. Edwin had come in second to Buddy Roma, which sort of surprised a great many of the people who were there. Edwin's came in, spoke a bit. You know, everybody was in fairly jovial mood. Edwin then disappeared, having gone upstairs, and then he came down to make a statement to the people present. I have determined, being the politician that I am, and I like to I like to say that if there's one thing that even those who dislike me the most will agree, I have had some experience in the political world of this state, and I know the people of this state. And I have determined that under the circumstances, since I did not run first, that it would be inappropriate for me to continue this election. On the night he conceded the election in 1987, with Mike Fowler in the audience at the Hotel Monteleon, Edwards consoled his supporters and himself by quoting for the first time the adage he would claim was an ancient Chinese proverb. I have to do what I think is best for my state. I don't want it further divided. 
There's never been a time in modern history when the combined efforts of the media has been so bent and dedicated on taking over the governor's office. I underestimated them and I tip my hat to them. The Chinese say that if you sit by the river long enough, the dead body of the enemy will come floating down. And in a sense, that is true. If you run enough time, sooner or later you're going to lose. Charles Buddy Romer III ran as a reform candidate in the Democratic Party, Edwards' own party. And with the results of the primary in hand, Edwards knew that his re-election was not in the cards. Instead of risking losing his first election ever, Edwin Edwards folded. Mike would move to Dallas, defending cases in the savings and loan crisis of the late 80s. He lost touch with his old friend, the former governor. Halfway through his term, Governor Buddy Romer decided to defect to the Republican Party in the throes of a midlife crisis. The governor's new party was highly skeptical. Later, in 1990, David Duke, the former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, ran for U.S. Senate as a Republican against J. Bennett Johnston, the Democratic incumbent. Duke lost the election, but shockingly carried 60% of the white vote across Louisiana. Suddenly, Duke was the state's leading Republican, not just a fringe candidate, even though the incumbent governor, eligible for re-election, was now a Republican. With the 1991 Louisiana gubernatorial election looming, Romer found himself increasingly unpopular. The decision to veto a radical abortion bill gave fodder for David Duke to pull evangelical support away from the governor. The former Klansman presented himself as a born-again Christian. Edwin Edwards could see that the Republican Party had a bad hand, with a split between their incumbent and a new, fatally flawed candidate. After all, a third of the electorate in Louisiana was African-American. So for the first time in the state's history, a former governor sought a fourth term when Edwin Edwards declared for the 1991 election. Because he was the leading Democrat, Edwin knew he would make the runoff. The question was, would his opponent be Romer or Duke? Buddy Romer made a costly mistake when, despite advice, he failed to point out the most obvious of realities. A David Duke administration would be terrible for business across the state. This would be a glaring omission seized upon Edwards as soon as the runoff period began. We all know how important jobs are to the future of our community. And unless Edwin Edwards is elected governor, Louisiana's shaky economy could collapse. Companies won't come to Louisiana unless Edwin is governor. And companies that are already here won't expand. Young people won't be able to get jobs, and everyone will suffer. Edwin Edwards brought jobs to Louisiana when he was governor before, and Edwin Edwards will attract jobs to Louisiana again to make Louisiana work again. Edwin Edwards, governor. During the runoff, the evidence of Duke being bad for business piled up, especially when President George H.W. Bush, a fellow Republican, said he wouldn't vote for Duke if he was voting in Louisiana. When someone asserts that the Holocaust never took place, then I don't believe that person ever deserves one iota of public trust. And when someone has so recently endorsed Nazism, uh, it is inconceivable that such a person can legitimately aspire uh, to leadership. Uh, so I believe that David Duke is an insincere charlatan. Uh, I believe he's attempting to hoodwink the voters of Louisiana, and uh, I believe that he should be rejected for what he is and what he stands for. But among all the stories of the 1991 Louisiana governor's race, 
What people remember most was a bumper sticker. The swamp legend is that a friend of Governor Edwards, not affiliated with the campaign, created the bumper sticker that read, Vote for the Crook. It's important. This is the CBS News special report. I'm Bob Schieffer in New York. Edwin Edwards has won the governor's race in Louisiana. The polls have just closed, but CBS News estimates when all the votes are counted, Edwards will defeat David Duke by a substantial margin. Edwards and Duke wound up in today's runoff after beating the current governor, Buddy Romer, in a three-way primary last month. Tonight, according to the exit polls, two-thirds of the people who voted then for Romer voted today for Edwards, who also received virtually unanimous support from black voters. Again, Edwin Edwards has defeated David Duke in the Louisiana governor's race. I'm Bob Schieffer in New York. In the three decades since, that remains the largest turnout of a Louisiana election by a country mile. The governor's old friend Camille Gravel wasn't around during his fourth term. Neither was Mike Fowler. I'm away from New Orleans from 90 to 94. I don't really see much of Ed when I'm back here. But from 92 to 96 is the period of the gambling boats. One of Edwin Edwards' campaign promises was a strategic one, backing a land-based casino in downtown New Orleans. The hope was that this and other additions to existing gambling options would increase turnout. Turnout was high, so it was time to deliver. While publicly downplaying his role, Governor Edwards was active behind the scenes to expand all forms of gambling in the state. There were decisions or actions taken by Edwin during that period, which upon reflection were questionable. And in my judgment, some of the reasons for the poor judgment was the absence of Camille Gravel from the scene. Camille had been executive counsel to Edwin, and Camille not only was a person of good judgment, political and otherwise, but he was like Edwin's conscience. But he wasn't present. And I think it had a bearing on the missteps that he made, uh, the questionable actions he took. Not necessarily criminal, but things that he perhaps would not have done or would have thought through better. Mike would return to Louisiana in 1995, moving to the North Shore of Lake Pontchartrain. But he didn't see much of his old friend, Edwin Edwards. In the spring of 97, I get a call from Edwin that he needs me to come see him, which I do. What had occurred is the feds had raided his home and seized $400,000. And it was part of an investigation that has been begun as a result of two ne'er-do-wells who were telling stories about meetings they had with Edwin that precipitated the investigation into the issuance of the gambling licenses. There is no indictment, but now former Governor Edwards faces a federal grand jury yet again, and this time they have 400,000 of his own dollars. There's the seizure of the 400,000, and then there's a, uh, an interim where there isn't much going on except efforts to get the 400,000 back, and the leverage we had was our willingness to depose special agents of the FBI, one of whom was named Cleveland, I remember that. But the threat of being able to question him 
caused the government to, in effect, return the $400,000 to Edwin. I never saw it because within an hour of it being there, Edwin was down in my office to pick up the check and take it home. Even after returning the money, the grand jury continued. The government was running a grand jury investigation in New Orleans. There was no indictment at this point. And there was some motion that they had to respond to in July of 97. I had gone in for some minor medical procedure, and I was under anesthesia. And when I get back to my home, I get a note that the government wants to have a telephone conference with the judge assigned to the case, the judge being Eldon Fallon of the Eastern District in New Orleans. I attend that telephone conference from home, somewhat groggy, and what the purpose of the conversation was, Letton was on the phone. Jim Letton was the government's lead counsel, and he's on the phone, and what Letton wants is an extension of a day or two within which to file their response to whatever motion I had made. And for some reason, I had the sense the government was trying to transfer jurisdiction of the case up to Baton Rouge. Edwin was not a popular figure in what was a very much conservative community in Baton Rouge, and they were looking to transfer it up to Baton Rouge. Sub Rosa, I mean, they didn't admit it, but I, on the phone call, sort of told the, the judge that that's what I thought. They, I opposed the motion. Eldon, being a smart guy, basically, you know, in, in substance indicated he hadn't fallen off the truck yesterday, but he granted their motion and gave him a day. At 8 o'clock the next morning, sure enough, Letton was in Baton Rouge seeking a motion to move the case to Baton Rouge, which Judge Parker summarily granted. So the case at that point gets moved to Baton Rouge, a far less hospitable venue for us to try a case. While everyone knew Edwin Edwards was under investigation, his son Stephen was also implicated in what came to be a conspiracy to rig the distribution of casino licenses. Specifically, San Francisco 49ers owner Eddie DeBartolo, owner of the Treasure Chest Casino, Bobby Guidry, and Stephen Edwards' close friend, Richard Chetler, were accused of paying bribes to Edwin, Stephen, and three of Edwin's associates shortly before and after he left office. From the point at which the case got transferred to Baton Rouge, there was sort of a lull. There are motions being made, but the government's continuing to run its grand jury investigation and apparently is getting nowhere in terms of getting people to flip and testify against Edwin. They were frustrated. So out of the blue, sometime in the late summer of 98, I get a call from Letton, and he's wanting to renew negotiations, and he is willing to virtually give us anything we want. That's an implication on my part, but it's fairly accurate. And I remember Mike Magner virtually having to hold the reins in on Letton so he didn't give away the courthouse as well. As a result, we resumed negotiations in secret 
at the Intercontinental Hotel pretty quickly. And what comes of that is an understanding that Edwin would plead to one count, 24 to 28 to 30 months, someplace in there, but there would be no indictment of Stephen. What the government was concerned about, what was a sticking point, they were afraid Edwin would testify if that a trial as to the other three went forward. We worked out an arrangement where we go on the record with what Edwin's statement of what occurred signed officially so that he could not testify on their behalf, okay? And I had to clear that arrangement with Edwin. When I spoke to Edwin about it, he was receptive. The now 70-year-old Edwin Edwards was not the same dynamic force that had outsmarted the FBI's investigations of the 1970s. Gone from his circle were people like the paragon of virtue, Camille Crevel, or allies like Judge Edmund Reggie and Charles Romer. The Edwin Edwards that I'm seeing and dealing with is not the Edwin I knew back in the mid-80s. He's not focused the same way. He's not doing the things that he should be doing to assist in getting ready for what could be an indictment, which hadn't come down yet. He's willing to fall on his sword, in effect, so that his son is not indicted. But he then tells me he has to talk to Stephen. When he comes back and tells me that he can't take the deal because Stephen threatens to commit suicide, I think it's crazy. I had, from that point forward, I regretted, frankly, not pressing him harder to take the deal despite the threat, what I thought was a bluff on Stephen's part. You know, because it was a, it was a good deal, I knew enough about the facts to know we had a lot more jeopardy this time than we did in the first trial a decade earlier. We have to turn down the deal. Within, I don't know, 90 days, we get word that the Bartolo, Shetler, Guidry, all had cut deals with the government. A 26-count RICO indictment would be filed, naming Edwin Edwards, Stephen Edwards, and four associates in a scheme that included charges of racketeering, extortion, and money laundering. Another turn of fate for Edwin would follow. The normal way a case is allotted is by random selection. There's just a rotation and it's random among the few judges up in the Middle District. Unlike that, Parker had retired, and out of the blue, the devil incarnate, otherwise known as Judge Palazzola, takes on the case, which is like the worst thing that could have happened because Palazzola may have been the worst judge I've ever dealt with. Vicious, mean, biased. I was very upset the arbitrary way that Palazzola had been uh, handpicked to try this case. And I wrote a letter to the Times-Picayune criticizing it and, in a sense, taking the Times-Picayune to task for not being equally upset with the failure to use the random selection process. Nothing came of it, but I just vented my feelings about it. Mike prepares for the trial, set for January 10th, 2000. We spend most of the year 99 getting ready for trial, but I'm dealing with a defendant who's unfocused, 
There are a lot of tape recordings, not able to listen. Now, the truth is, A, I thought it was crazy he had turned down what was a very satisfactory resolution from any lawyer's point of view. B, I was not happy with the team of lawyers that we would have had in the case at this point. And in, I was up in Baton Rouge getting ready to try a case at the end of 99 when I get a call from Edwin that he wanted to see me at his home. When I get to his house, is he, he's not only there, but Stephen's there. And I sort of read the handwriting on the wall. I and Stephen and I and Jim Cole didn't see eye to eye on a number of things. Stephen was pissed. I had almost missed a deadline on a sort of perfunctory kind of motion the government had filed, and Stephen made more of it than was really meaningful. But I had a sense when I walked into that meeting that something significant was going to happen, like my not continuing the case. That's precisely what Edwin, in the friendliest terms, said, you know, I decided Stephen would prefer that I not... Re uh, be represented by you, and I'm going to go forward with his suggestion. When it's, that was done in Stephen's presence, I didn't say anything negative. Stephen leaves, and Edwin and I then continue a conversation. He's calm. He was not angry in the context of telling me that he was going to, you know, uh, ask me to withdraw. But what I had happen in the next half hour, I got a sense of Edwin rethinking his decision to get rid of me and was on the verge of changing his mind. And I told him not to change his mind. And I left. I went back to my hotel room where I was living in preparation for this other federal trial. And I wrote this long letter to Edwin in which I suggested that he'd made the decision and he ought to stay with it and I wouldn't come back in the case in under any circumstances. Edwin Edwards went to trial, facing 28 counts of federal racketeering charges for a maximum possible sentence of 350 years in prison. Following his indictment in 1985, Edwards understood the stakes. If it is found that it is I who made the mistakes, my family and I will pay an awesome price. I will lose my license to practice law. I will resign my position as governor, my reputation, honor, and impressive record of valuable public service going back for 30 years, and my liberty will be stripped from me. And I will plummet instantly from an enviable life to a miserable existence. They called Frank Polozola, the judge in Edwin Edwards' third trial, Ayatollah Polozola. The fix was in, and Edwin Edwards being a crook would never again be a fun campaign bumper sticker. Well, George, the verdict came down at 3.30 this afternoon, ending a four-month-long trial filled with suspense and emotion. Former Governor Edwards, the flamboyant politician known for his love of gambling, is convicted of extorting hundreds of thousands of dollars from applicants seeking Riverboat Casino licenses. One of the convictions against Edwards involved former San Francisco 49ers owner Eddie DeBartolo Jr., who testified he gave Edwards $400,000 to get a casino license. DeBartolo pled guilty to failing to report a felony and lost control of his NFL franchise. 
The former governor's son, Stephen, was convicted of 18 counts against him. Cecil Brown and Andrew Martin, two of the governor's longtime political friends, were convicted of all charges against them, as was Bobby Johnson, a Baton Rouge contractor, E. Cotry Fuller, member of the state gaming control board, and state senator Greg Tarver were acquitted of charges that they passed a confidential gaming report to Edwards for DeBartolo. The former governor looked calm as the verdicts were announced, looking at his wife, Candy, who wiped away tears. Well, of course, I'm, I'm disappointed. Uh, frankly, I didn't expect it. I regret that it has ended this way, but that is the system. I lived 72 years of my life within the system. I'll spend the rest of my life within the system. The Chinese have a saying that if you sit by the river long enough, the dead body of your enemy will come floating down the river. I suppose the feds sat by the river long enough, so here comes my body. There's a special irony to all of this. Arguably, no governor is more influential with the resurgence of riverboat casinos and gambling in general than Edwin Edwards. He was essentially a one-man tourism bureau for Las Vegas. And as Mike mentioned earlier, Edwin won big time in Vegas, which they had proven in court during the first two trials. While Edwin Edwards may have been one of the state's biggest cheerleaders for legalized gambling, but he wasn't actually in office when it finally happened. Alas, it was Buddy Romer, the goody two-shoes reformer, who had actually been responsible for legalizing gambling. Well, technically, they called it gaming, but that's a different story. However, Romer wasn't in any hurry to pack the licensing boards or begin doling out casino licenses, which meant that when Edwin returned to office after beating David Duke in 1991, he would get to pick up right where he left off. By the time he departed the governor's mansion for the last time in 1996, Edwin was still connecting interested casino operators to the folks he knew on the licensing board. Lots of cash was involved. The whole thing looked bad, even though some now argue the government's case against him was a stretch. But the feds flipped Edwin's clients against him, including, notably, the owner of the San Francisco 49ers, Eddie DeBartolo. After the trial, Edwin and I remained friends. I remember Edwin talking to the Times-Picayune at some point after the well after the trial and saying one of the major mistakes he made was letting me go as his attorney. And he co-authored a book while he was in jail, his biography, in which he repeated the same thing, that the greatest mistake he made was letting me out of the case. Whether I would have made a difference, I don't know. I believe that the Bartolo who testified he had been coerced into giving Edwin $400,000, I think the Bartolo lied. I think Guidry likewise lied about any pressure or any payment that he ever made to Edwin that was anyway connected with the case. You know, interestingly enough, after the case was over, I know for a fact Guidry and Edwin remained friends. Then when he gets out, shortly after, gets involved with his, with another woman, and they get married, and the day after that, there's a roast for Edwin, uh, at which he is selling his biography, by the way. But I'm at the roast in which Edwin uh, has just been married and is now back in private life. He had served his sentence, served his time in the halfway house, I've seen him on occasion. I visited him 
shortly before I began writing the book, saw him, his wife had given birth to a new child, and he's now 91 years old and has a six-year-old son. And he was a unique personality and still is, and he's still a friend of mine. It'd be a mistake to define the life and career of Edwin Edwards by only looking at the sagas that played out in the justice system. He's a man who continues, even at the age of 92, to beguile and intrigue and endear himself to the people of Louisiana. In many ways, like Huey P. Long, he's become synonymous with the character of the state he once led. But unlike the Kingfish, Edwin Edwards has lived a long life, long enough to see himself become the villain and then the hero again a couple of times. Since his birth in 1927, he's been a country preacher and then a country lawyer, a city councilman, a state senator, a U.S. congressman, a governor, a state Supreme Court justice, a defendant, an inmate, a professional gambler, a writer, a healthcare facility developer, a reality television star, a husband, and a father to five children, including a 69-year-old daughter and a six-year-old son. In the decades that have passed since the two trials in the 1980s and the trial in 2000, Prosecutor John Voles ran for and lost two elections. He died in 2011. Judge Polizola has also since passed away. U.S. Attorney Eddie Jordan was forced to resign in disgrace. So was his successor, U.S. Attorney Jim Letton. Eddie DeBartolo Jr., who Mike thinks lied on the stand, pleaded guilty to one count of failing to report a felony. He was sentenced to a million-dollar fine and two years probation in return for his testimony. The NFL put him on suspension for a year. DeBartolo then traded ownership of the San Francisco 49ers to his sister, Denise DeBartolo York, in exchange for other parts of their family's empire in the year 2000. Sixteen years later, DeBartolo hosted an inauguration fundraiser for then-president-elect Donald Trump with Omarosa Manigault Newman and Michael Cohen, who's now a convicted felon. President Trump then pardoned DeBartolo in 2020. As for Edwards, in 2015, four years after he was released from prison, he polled as Louisiana's most popular politician. The Chinese say if you sit by the bank of the river long enough, you will see the dead bodies of your enemies come floating by. And I did it. There's more details in Mike's book, From the Bronx to the Bayou, available online at bronxtothebayou.com and on Amazon in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. If you're in New Orleans, it's available at Octavia Books and Blue Cypress Bookstore. I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayou Brief. On behalf of myself and my producer Ben Collinsworth, thanks for listening. <laughs>